Don't forget, my good folks. This is, of course, Sidecar Stories, and right now we are reading Lord of the Rings, and I would like to know from all of you, when is the best time to read Lord of the Rings? Currently, uh, we read these at 4 p.m. Pacific time, but over in Discord, I am holding a, uh, a vote. Uh, you'll find that in the uh, in the vote channel. It's up in the um, kind of the, the, the general info channels. You'll see it, L-O-T-R schedule vote. Um, I want to know from y'all, when is the best time for you for me to read these things? Um, is it at the same time? Is it at a different time, um, slightly earlier, slightly later? Um, I'd like to know, so I think... Uh, if y'all could help me out with that, that would be excellent. Head over there and vote. Of course, you can find that link. Linktree slash Sidecar Stories. L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Sidecar Stories. Sorry, there's stuff happening over in Discord that's unrelated to what we're doing here today. But it is happening nonetheless. <laughs> oh, man. I don't I don't care for cicadas. I'm not a big cicada fan. I, like, I overall, I don't have a big thing about, like, bugs. I'm not terribly like scared of bugs or they don't weird me out mostly uh but cicadas are a little different cicadas i don't like their shape i guess proteus says i once had multiple bees try to get into my mouth i have no fear of them now now that doesn't make any sense at all that you have no fear of them after that i feel i'm not terribly scared of bees but i feel like if a bunch of them tried to get in my mouth i probably would be honestly if anything try like if a bunch of anything tried to get in my mouth <laughs> I would be scared of it. I'm, frankly, I'm a little scared of tortellini for that same reason. Because them, them suckers are always trying to get in my mouth. Hey, folks, should we talk a little bit of review? <laughs> should we talk about some review? Uh, so far, we have read uh, chapters 1 through 5 of The Lord of the Rings. Especially the Fellowship of the Ring. Now, hold on a second, actually, because now that I think about it, is that the title of this book technically? Because, of course, there are the three books that everyone knows, right? Uh, let's see, names of the Lord of the Rings books. Because Lord of the Rings is actually divided up into six books, not the three that most of us sort of uh, know it by. Um, let's see. Ba -ba 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 -ba. Okay, so, uh, near the turn of the millennium, as Judas, let me let me speak out loud here. Near the turn of the millennium, as Peter Jackson's movie trilogy loomed, modern publishers thought to release The Lord of the Rings in six volumes, closer to what Tolkien had originally intended. Guided by prospective titles from Tolkien's letters and his son, Christopher, the books were named... 1. The Return of the Shadow. 2. The Fellowship of the Ring. 3. The Treason of Isengard. Four, The Journey to Mordor, slash The Two Towers. Five, The War of the Ring. And six, The Return of the King. So, um, those are the those are the book titles here. So, technically, I suppose we are, uh, we are well on our way into The Return of the Shadow. But, most of you all will know this uh, divided up into three stories. Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, and The Return of the King. That is how most of you all will know this. Uh, but, we're well on our way in, regardless. Frodo has left the Shire, right? Uh, Bilbo left a while ago under mysterious circumstances to everyone but Gandalf and Frodo. Um, Frodo knows that he's gone off to travel, but Bilbo left this ring with Frodo, and Gandalf has discovered this ring is not just a ring. It's not just some cool ring that makes you invisible. No, this is the One Ring. The One Ring belonging to the Dark Lord Sauron, although I don't know if he's been called that quite yet, I can't remember. Um, basically, 
this ring is sort of the the master ring over uh, a couple of other rings that were handed out uh, to some of the elves, some of the dwarves, some of the, the, the kings of humans, and... In that, the idea was this one ring is going to be able to slowly corrupt the wearers of those other rings, and by that, this one ring is going to be able to rule all of Middle-earth. Well, now it's in the pocket of a hobbit who was never really supposed to have it. Gandalf knows this ring cannot fall back into uh, the enemy's hands, and so he says that Frodo must leave the Shire and go somewhere else, somewhere not to be found. Um, he doesn't know how far... Frodo will have to take it, but he knows Frodo can't stay here for very long. Frodo indeed finds this to be true, as he and his gardener, now friend, Samwise Gamgee, and uh, some of his other hobbit friends are now heading uh, east out of the Shire, um, ostensibly toward a house that Frodo is now to live in, but we know that's not true. Only on this voyage, only Sam and Frodo really know the truth, as far as we know. Um, and so, as Frodo makes his way out we find that he is indeed being pursued. These black-clad riders, they follow, they hunt for Frodo. As a matter of fact, uh, one of them at one point gets off of their horse and starts snuffling through the grass and crawling toward Frodo's hiding place. It's terrifying. Frodo manages to escape every time thus far and uh, has a quick run-in with the elves who sort of tell him, you know, there's a lot to be said about this, but a lot that I'm not sure about, and so you'll have to ask Gandalf most of your questions, but I, as an elf, name you Elf Friend, and we will put out our word to the other scout, our other sort of elf scouts in the area, uh, and we shall do our best to protect you where we can. Yeah, Orly Rose, that, that's, it's one picture that I, we didn't really get, one, one image that we didn't really get in the movies, um, that, boy, do I wish we had, because it is such a nasty, spooky image, uh, the image of, <laughs> assuming this is what you're talking about, uh, and not bees related, uh, but, the, uh, <laughs> the idea of one of these black clad riders just, like, crawling around on the ground, sniffing, that's worse. That's worse than like Dementors. Worse than uh, them just like you know sniffing off their saddle or what have you. That's that is so wild. It's so wild. It would have been a, a nice little horror move, but maybe that wasn't the intent. It's fine. Um, now they are approaching their eventual, like their sort of first destination. Right, this first destination being um, where Frodo has moved back to. Buckland, I want to say. I don't remember all the precise uh, uh, geography, but I believe his intent is to move back to Buckland after a long time living at Bag End. Um, and that's roundabout where we're at. We leave off with the uh, the hobbits um, having just departed Farmer Maggot's place, and Farmer Maggot has uh, has helped out with the <laughs> with the process of getting on down the road and hiding them from any uh, any watchful eyes right now Frodo is traveling with Samwise Gamgee uh, in addition to uh, Meriadoc Brandybuck aka Mary and Peregrine Took aka Pippin that's where we're at and I do hope they will be able to stay off the road <laughs> Thank you.
Chapter 5 A Conspiracy Unmasked Now we had better get home ourselves, said Mary. There's something funny about all this, I see, but must wait till we get in. They turned down the ferry lane, which was straight and well-kept and edged with large whitewashed stones. In a hundred yards or so, it brought them to the river bank, where there was a broad wooden landing stage. A large, flat ferry boat was moored beside it. The white bollards near the water's edge glimmered in the light of two lamp posts. Behind them, the mists in the flat fields were now above the hedges, but the water before them was dark, with only a few curling wisps, like steam, among the reeds by the bank. There seemed to be less fog on the other side. Mary led the pony over a gangway onto the ferry, and the others followed. Mary then pushed off slowly with a long pole. The brandywine flowed slow and broad before them. On the other side, the bank was steep, and up it a winding path climbed from the further landing. Lamps were twinkling there. Behind loomed up Buck Hill, and out of it, through stray shrouds of mist, shone many round windows, yellow and red. They were the windows of Brandy Hall, the ancient home of the Brandy Bucks. Long ago, old Gorhendad Old Buck, head of the Old Buck family, which is the oldest in Marish, or indeed in the Shire, had crossed the river, which was the original boundary of the land eastward. He built, and excavated, Brandy Hall, changing his name to Brandy Buck, and settled down to become master of what was virtually a small independent country. His family grew and grew, and after his days, continued to grow, until Brandy Hall occupied the whole of the low hill, and had three large front doors, many side doors, and about a hundred windows. The Brandy Bucks and their numerous dependents then began to burrow, and later to build all around. That was the origin of Buckland. A thickly inhabited strip between the river and the old forest, a sort of colony from the Shire. Its chief village was Buckleberry, clustered in the banks and slopes behind Brandy Hall. The people in the Marish were friendly with the Bucklanders, and the authority of the master of the hall, as the head of the Brandybuck family was called, was still acknowledged by the farmers between Stock and Rushy. But most of the folk in the old shire regarded the Bucklanders as peculiar. Half foreigners, as it were, though as a matter of fact they were not very different from all the other hobbits of the four farthings, except in one point. They were fond of boats, and some of them could swim. Their land was originally unprotected from the east, but on that side they had built a hedge, the High Hay. It had been planted many generations ago and was now thick and tall, for it was constantly tended. It ran all the way from Brandywine Bridge, in a big loop curving away from the river, to Haysend, where the Withywindle flowed out of the forest into the Brandywine, well over twenty miles from end to end, but of course it was not a complete protection. The forest drew close to the hedge in many places. The Bucklanders kept their doors locked after dark, and that also was not usual in the Shire. The ferryboat moved slowly across the water. The Buckland shore drew nearer. Sam was the only member of the party who had not been over the river before. He had a strange feeling as the slow, gurgling stream slipped by. His old life lay behind in the mists dark adventure lay in front. He scratched his head and for a moment had a passing wish that Mr. Frodo could have gone on living quietly in Bag End. The four hobbits stepped off the ferry. 
Mary was tying up, and Pippin was already leading the pony to the path, when Sam, who had been looking back as if to say farewell to the Shire, said in a hoarse whisper, Look back, Mr. Frodo! Do you see anything? On the far stage, under the distant lamps, they could just make out a figure. It looked like a dark black bundle left behind. But as they looked, it seemed to move and sway this way and that, as if searching the ground. It then crawled, or went crouching, back into the gloom beyond the lamps. What in the Shire was that? exclaimed Mary. Something that's following us, said Frodo. But don't ask any more now. Let's get away at once. They hurried up the path to the top of the bank, but when they looked back to the far shore, it was shrouded in mist. Nothing could be seen. Thank goodness you don't keep any boats on the west bank, said Frodo. Can horses cross the river? They can go twenty miles north to the Brandywine Bridge. Or they might swim, answered Mary. Though I never heard of any horse swimming the Brandywine. What can horses have to do with it? I'll tell you later. Let's get indoors and then we can talk. All right, you and Pippin know your way, so I'll just ride on and tell Fatty Bulger that you're coming. We'll see about supper and things. We had our supper early with Farmer Maggot, said Frodo, but we could do with another. You shall have it. Give me that basket, said Mary, and rode ahead into the darkness. It was some distance from the Brandywine to Frodo's new house at Crick Hollow. They passed Buck Hill and Brandy Hall on their left, and on the outskirts of Buckleberry struck the main road of Buckland that ran south from the bridge. Half a mile northward along this, they came to a lane opening on their right. This they followed for a couple of miles as it climbed up and down into the country. At last they came to a narrow gate in a thick hedge. Nothing could be seen of the house in the dark. It stood back from the lane in the middle of a wide circle of lawn, surrounded by a belt of low trees inside the outer hedge. Frodo had chosen it because it stood in an out-of-the-way corner of the country, and there were no other dwellings close by. You could get in and out without being noticed. It had been built a long while before by the Brandybucks, for the use of guests, or members of the family that wished to escape from the crowded life of Brandy Hall for a time. It was an old-fashioned, countrified house, as much like a hobbit hole as possible. It was long and low, with no upper story. It had a turf roof round windows, and a large round door. As they walked up the green path from the gate, no light was visible. The windows were dark and shuttered. Frodo knocked on the door, and Fatty Bulger opened it. A friendly light streamed out. They slipped in quickly and shut themselves and the light inside. They were in a wide hall, with doors on either side, and in front of them a passage ran back down the middle of the house. Well... "'What do you think of it?' asked Mary, coming up the passage. "'We've done our best in a short time make it look like home. "'After all, Fatty and I only got here with a cartload yesterday.' Frodo looked round. It did look like home. Many of his own favorite things, or Bilbo's things, were arranged as nearly as possible as they had been in Bag End. It was a pleasant, comfortable, welcoming place.' and he found himself wishing that he really were coming here to settle down in quiet retirement. It seemed unfair to have put his friends to all this trouble, and he wondered again how he was going to break the news to them that he must leave, and soon, indeed at once, 
Yet that would have to be done that very night, before they all went to bed. It's delightful, he said with an effort. I hardly feel I've moved at all. The travelers hung up their cloaks and piled their packs on the floor. Mary led them down a passage and threw open a door at the far end. Firelight came out and a puff of steam. A bath? cried Pippin. Oh, blessed Mariaduck! Which order shall we go in? said Frodo. Oldest first or quickest first? You'll be last either way, Master Peregrine. Trust me to arrange things better than that, said Mary. Can't begin life at Kirkolo with a quarrel over baths. In that room, there are three tubs and a copper full of boiling water. There are also towels, mats, and soap. Get inside and be quick. Mary and Fatty went to the kitchen on the other side of the passage and busied themselves with the final preparations for a late supper. Snatches of competing songs came from the bathroom, mixed with the sound of splashing and wallowing. The voice of Pippin was suddenly lifted high above the others in one of Bilbo's favorite bath songs. Sing, hey, for at the close of the day, wash his weary mud away. Loon is he that will not sing, oh, what a hot is a noble thing. Sweet's the sound of falling rain, and brook that leaps from hill to plain, but better than the rain or rippling streams is what a hot that smokes and steams. Oh, what a cold report it needs, down a thirsty throat and glad indeed, but better is beer if we lack, and hot water pour down the back. Oh, water's fair that leaps on high in a fountain white beneath the sky, but never did fountain sound so sweet as splashing hot water with my feet. There was a terrific splash and a sound of whoa from Frodo. It appeared that a lot of Pippin's bath had imitated a fountain and leapt on high. Mary went to the door. What about supper and beer in the kitchen? He called. Frodo came out drying his hair. So much water in the air that I'm coming to the kitchen to finish, he said. Locks, said Mary, looking in. The stone floor was swimming. You ought to mop that up before you get anything to eat, Peregrine, he said. Hurry up, or we shan't wait for you. They had supper in the kitchen, on a table near the fire. I suppose you three won't want mushrooms again, said Fredegar, without much hope. Yes, we shall, said Pippin. They're mine, said Frodo, given to me by Mrs. Maggot, a queen among farmers' wives. Take your greedy hands away and I'll serve them. Hobbits have a passion for mushrooms, surpassing even the greediest likings of big people. A fact which partly explains young Frodo's long expedition to the renowned fields of the Marish and the wrath of the injured maggot. On this occasion, there was plenty for all, even according to Hobbit standards. There were also many other things to follow, and when they had finished, even Fatty Bulger heaved a sigh of content. They pushed back the table and drew chairs around the fire. We'll clear up later, said Mary. Now tell me all about it. I guess that you've been having adventures, which is not quite fair without telling me. I want a full account, and most of all, I want to know what's the matter with old Maggot and why he spoke to me like that. He sounded almost as if he were scared, if that's possible. We've all been scared, said Pippin after a pause, in which Frodo stared at the fire and did not speak. You would have been too, if you'd been chased for two days by black-clad riders. And what are they? Black figures riding on black horses, answered Pippin. 
If Frodo won't talk, I'll tell you the whole tale from the beginning. Then he gave a full account of their journey from the time that they left Hobbiton. Sam gave various supporting nods and exclamations. Frodo remained silent. I should think you're making it all up, said Merry. If I'd not seen that black shape on the landing stage and heard that queer sound in Maggot's voice. What do you make of it all, Frodo? Cousin Frodo's been very close, said Pippin. But the time has come for him to open out. So far we've given nothing more than go on about Farmer Maggot's guess. Something to do with old Bilbo's treasure. That was only a guess, said Frodo hastily. Maggot does not know anything. Hmm. Old Maggot's a shrewd fellow, said Merry. What goes on beyond his round face that doesn't come out in his talk? I've heard that he used to go into the old forest at one time. He's got a reputation of knowing a good many strange things. But you can tell us, Frodo, whether you think his guess is good or bad. I think, answered Frodo slowly, that it was a good guess, as far as it goes. There is a connection with Bilbo's old adventures, and the riders are looking, or perhaps one might ought to say searching, for him or for me. I also fear, if you want to know, that it's no joke at all, and I'm not safe here, or anywhere else. He looked round at the windows and walls as if he were afraid they would suddenly give way. The others looked at him in silence, and exchanged meaningful glances amongst themselves. It's coming out in a minute, whispered Pippin to Mary. Mary nodded. Well, said Frodo at last, sitting up and straightening his back as he made a decision. I can't keep it dark any longer. I've got something to tell you. But I don't know how to begin. I think I could help you, said Mary quietly, by telling you some of it myself. What do you mean? said Frodo, looking at him anxiously. Just this, dear old Frodo. You're miserable, because you don't know how to say goodbye. You meant to leave the Shire, of course, but dangers come up on you sooner than you expected. And now, you're making up your mind to go out at once. And you don't want to. We're very sorry for you. Frodo opened his mouth and shut it again. His look of surprise was so comical that they laughed. <laughs> Dear Mr. Frodo, said Pippin, did you really think that you'd thrown the dust in all of our eyes? You've not been nearly careful or clever enough for that. You've obviously been planning on going and saying farewell to all your haunts all this year since April. We've constantly heard you muttering, shall I ever look down that valley again, I wonder, and things like that, and pretending that you've come to the end of your money. And actually selling your beloved bag end to those sackful bagginses. And all of those close talks with Gandalf. Oh, good heavens, said Frodo. I thought I'd been both careful and clever. I don't know what Gandalf would say. Is all the Shire discussing my departure then? No, no, said Mary. Don't worry about that. The secret won't keep for long, of course. But at present it is, I think, only known to us conspirators. After all, you must remember, we know you well. And we're often with you. I can usually guess what you're thinking. I knew Bilbo, too. Tell you the truth, I've been watching you rather closely ever since he left. I thought you'd go after him sooner or later. 
Indeed, I expected you to go sooner. And lately, we've been very anxious. We've been terrified you might give us the slip and go off suddenly, all on your own, like he did. Ever since this spring, we've kept our eyes open, done a good deal of planning on our own account. You're not going to escape so easily. But I must go, said Frodo. It can't be helped, dear friends. It's wretched for us all, but it's no use your trying to keep me. Since you've guessed so much, please help me and do not hinder me. Oh, you don't understand, said Pippin. You must go, and therefore we must too. Mary and I are coming with you. Sam's an excellent fellow and would jump down a dragon's throat to save you if he didn't trip over his own feet. But you'll need more than one companion in your dangerous adventure. My dear and most beloved hobbits, said Frodo, moved deeply, but I could not allow it. I decided that long ago, too. You speak of danger, but you do not understand. This is no treasure hunt. There's no there-and-back journey. I am flying from deadly peril into deadly peril. Of course we understand, said Mary firmly. That's why we've decided to come. We know the rain's no laughing matter, but we're going to do our best to help you against the enemy. The ring, said Frodo, now completely amazed. Yes, the ring, said Mary. My dear old hobbit, you don't allow for the inquisitiveness of friends. <laughs> I've known about the existence of the ring for years. Before Bilbo went away, in fact. But since he obviously guarded it as a secret, I kept the knowledge in me head until we formed our conspiracy. I did not know Bilbo, of course, as well as you. I was too young, and he was more careful. But he wasn't quite careful enough. If you want to know how I first found out, I'll tell you. Well, go on, said Frodo faintly. It was the Sackville Bagginses that were his downfall, as you might expect. One day, a year before the party, I happened to be walking along the road when I saw Bilbo ahead. Suddenly, in the distance, the SBs appeared, coming toward us. Bilbo slowed down, and then, hey, presto, he vanished. I was so startled, I hardly had the wits to hide myself in a more ordinary fashion, but I got through the hedge, walked along the field inside. I was peering onto the road after the SBs had passed, looking straight at Bilbo when he suddenly reappeared. Got a glint of gold as he put something back in his trouser pocket. After that, I kept my eyes open. In fact, I confess I spied. But you must admit, it was very intriguing, and I was only in my teens. Must be the only one in the Shire beside you, Frodo, what's never seen the old fellow's secret book. You have read his book, cried Frodo. God, heavens above, is nothing safe? Not too safe, I should say, said Mary. But I only had one rapid glance, and that was difficult to get. Never left the book about, he did. I wonder what became of it. I should like to have another look. Have you got it, Frodo? No, it wasn't at Bag End. He must have taken it away. Well, as I was saying, Mary proceeded, I kept my knowledge to myself, till this spring, when things got serious. Then we formed our conspiracy. And as we were serious too, and meant business, we've not been too scrupulous. You're not a very easy nut to crack, and Gandalf is worse. But if you want to be introduced to our chief investigator, I can produce him. Where is he? said Frodo, looking around as if he expected a masked and sinister figure to come out of a cupboard. Step forward, Sam, said Mary, 
and Sam stood up with a face scarlet to the ears. Here's our collector of information. And he collected a lot, I can tell you, before he was finally caught. After which, I may say, he seemed to regard himself as on parole and dried up. Sam, cried Frodo, feeling amazement that could go no further, and was quite unable to decide whether he felt angry, amused, relieved, or merely foolish. Yes, sir, said Sam. Begging your pardon, sir. But I meant no wrong to you, Mr. Frodo, nor to Mr. Gandalf, for that matter. He has some sense, mind you, and when you said go alone, he said no. Take someone with you, as you trust. But it does not seem I can trust anyone, said Frodo. Sam looked at him unhappily. Well, it all depends on what you want, put in Mary. You can trust us to stick you through thin and thin, to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours, closer than you keep it yourself. But you can't trust us to let you face trouble alone, and go off without a word. We're your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf has told you, and we know a good deal about the ring. We're horribly afraid, but we're coming with you, or following you like hounds. And after all, sir? added Sam. You did ought to take the elves' advice. Gildor said you should take them as his willing, and you can't deny it. I don't deny it, said Frodo, looking at Sam, who was now grinning. I don't deny it, but I'll never believe you're sleeping again, whether you snore or not. I'll kick you hard to make sure. You are a set of deceitful scoundrels, he said, turning to the others, but bless you. He laughed, getting up and waving his arms. I give in. I shall take Gildor's advice. If the danger were not so dark, I should dance for joy. Even so, I can't help feeling happy. Happier than I've felt for a long time. I had dreaded this evening. Good. That's settled. Three cheers for Captain Frodo and company, they shouted, and they danced around him. Merry and Pippin began a song which they had apparently had ready for the occasion. It was made on the model of the dwarf song that started Bilbo on his adventure long ago, and went to the same tune. Farewell we call to hearth and hall, the wind may blow and rain may fall, we must away ere break of day, far over wood and mountain hall. To Rivendell, where elves yet dwell, in glades beneath a misty fell, through moor and waste, we ride in haste, and whither then we cannot tell. With foes ahead, behind us tread, beneath the skies shall be our bed, until at last our toil be past, on journey done our errand sped. We must away, we must away. We ride before the break of day. Very good, said Frodo. But in that case, there are a lot of things to do before we go to bed. Under a roof for tonight, at any rate. Oh, that was poetry, said Pippin. Do you really mean to start before the break of day? I don't know, answered Frodo. I fear those black riders, and I'm sure it's unsafe to stay in one place too long especially in a place to which it is known I was going. Also, Gildor advised me not to wait. But I should very much like to see Gandalf. I could see that even Gildor was disturbed when he heard that Gandalf never appeared. 
It really depends on two things. How could the riders get to Buckleberry, and how soon could we get off? It would take a good deal of preparation. The answer to the second question, said Mary, is that we can get off in an hour. I've prepared practically everything. There are six ponies in a stable across the fields. Stores and tackle are all packed except for a few extra clothes and the perishable food. Oh, it seems to have been a very efficient conspiracy, said Frodo. But what, what about the Black Riders? Would it be safe to wait one day for Gandalf? That all depends on what you think the Riders would do if they found you were here, answered Mary. They could have reached here by now, of course, if they were not stopped at the north gate, where the hedge runs down to the river bank, just this side of the bridge. The gate guards wouldn't let them through by night, though they might break through. Even in daylight, they would try to keep them out, I think, at any rate till they got a message through to the master of the all, for they would not like the look of the riders, and would certainly be frightened by them. But of course, Buckland can't resist a determined attack for long, and it is possible that in the morning, even a black rider that rode up and asked for Mr. Baggins would be let through. It's pretty generally known that you're coming back to live at Crick Hollow. Frodo sat for a while in thought. I've made up my mind, he said finally. I'm starting tomorrow, as soon as it's light. But I'm not going by road. It would be safer to wait here than that. If I go through the north gate... My departure from Buckland will be known at once, instead of being a secret for several days at least, as it might be. And what's more, the bridge and the east road near the borders will certainly be watched, whether any rider gets into Buckland or not. We don't know how many there are, but there are at least two, and possibly more. The only thing to do is to go off in a quite unexpected direction. But that could only be going through the old forest, said Fredegar, horrified. You can't be thinking of doing that. It's quite as dangerous as Black Riders. Not quite. It sounds very desperate, but I believe Frodo's right. It's the only way of getting off without being followed at once. With luck, we might get a considerable start. But you won't have any luck in the old forest, objected Fredegar. No one's ever got any luck in there. You'll get lost. People don't go in there. Oh, yes, they do said Mary. The Brandybucks go in. Occasionally, when the fit takes them, we have a private entrance. Frodo went in once, long ago. I've been in several times, usually in daylight, of course, when the trees are sleepy and fairly quiet. Well, you do as you think is best, said Fredegar. I'm more afraid of the old forest than of anything I know about. The stories are a nightmare, but my vote hardly counts, as I'm not going on the journey. Still... I'm glad someone's stopping behind who can tell Gandalf what you've done when he turns up, as I'm sure he will do before too long. Fond as he was of Frodo, Fatty Bulger had no desire to leave the Shire, nor to see what lay outside of it. His family came from the East Farthing, from Budgeford, in Bridgefield, in fact, but he had never been over the Brandywine Bridge. His task, according to the original plans of the conspirators, was to stay behind and deal with inquisitive folk and to keep up as long as possible the pretense that Mr. Baggins was still living at Crick Hollow. He even brought some old clothes of Frodo's that might help him in playing the part. They little thought how dangerous that part might be. Excellent, said Frodo, when he understood the plan. 
We could not have left any message behind for Gandalf otherwise. I don't know whether these riders can read or not, of course, but I should not have dared to risk a written message in case they got in and searched the house. But if Fatty's willing to stay behind and hold the fort, I can be sure that Gandalf will know the way that we've gone. That decides me. I'm going into the old forest first thing tomorrow. Well, that's that, said Pippin. On the whole, I should rather have our job than Fatty's. Waiting here for the Black Raiders to come. You wait till you're inside the old forest, said Fredegar. You wish you were back here with me before this time tomorrow. There's no use arguing about it any more, said Mary. We've still got to tidy up and put the finishing touches to the packing before we can get to bed. I shall call you all before the break of day. When at last he had got to bed, Frodo could not sleep for some time. His legs ached. He was glad he was riding in the morning. Eventually he fell into a vague dream, in which he seemed to be looking out of a high window over a dark sea of tangled trees. Down below among the roots there was the sound of creatures crawling and sniffling. He felt sure they would smell him out sooner or later. Then he heard a noise in the distance. At first he thought it was a great wind coming over the leaves of the forest. Then he knew it was not leaves, but the sound of the sea far off. A sound he had never heard in waking life, though it had often troubled his dreams. Suddenly he found he was out in the open. There were no trees after all. He was on a dark heath, and there was a strange salt smell in the air. Looking up, he saw before him a tall, white tower, standing alone on a high ridge. A great desire came over him to climb the tower and see the sea. He started to struggle up the ridge toward the tower, but suddenly a light came into the sky and there was a noise of thunder. folks we're back in we're back into our adventure a very brief pause here at crick hollow this is the town where frodo was supposed to be moving to but of course we'll get to all of that in our review everyone what do you think so far we're at our halfway point which means one chapter down one chapter left to go we are about to embark on the chapter six the old forest i'm going to take a break but before i do that i would like to leave you all with a chatterbreak question. Our conspirators here, because y'all know how I am. Y'all know as much as I enjoy talking about uh, the, the the plot lines and the themes and all of that, the way that I really enjoy looking at these is via the characters. Those are the ones I really love. 
Our conspirators here. Sam, Mary, Pippin, and Fredegar Bolger. Um, we have got our four conspirators, and it seems that they have known for quite some time uh, about, A, the existence of the ring, right? That's pretty huge. Bilbo thought it was secret. Sam thought it was secret. Even Gandalf had sort of come and gone without ever mentioning that it might be known, and so, well, known to hobbits at least. Um, he, he knew it was a possibility that it would happen, but I don't think he realized that it, well, it done happened already. <laughs> so, um, our conspirators here. Pretty Spade says, hobbits are awesome, they really care about each other, it's not just talk, they mean what they say. Yeah, there is, I mean, there's a huge difference between, like, consider even the difference between, hey, look, I, I know why you're really here in Crick Hollow, and I know you're not here to stay. So, I've set up two ponies, because I know you and Sam are heading off into the wide world. Uh, good luck to you, um, we wish you the best, big hugs all around. Difference between that and, hey, um... I know you and Sam have to go off into some danger, and so I've loaded up six ponies because the four of us, <laughs> me, me, Pippin, Sam, and you, we're going to have a lot of luggage, and so the four of us are, are going to probably need about six ponies between us. It's a big deal. They're heading off with... They're heading off with Frodo into a danger that they are even uncertain about, right? Consider how uncertain Frodo is, and then consider how uncertain the hobbits are. Now, the question is, which one of them do you think has greater reason to fear? Frodo, who knows a lot, or... Uh, Mary and Pippin, who are kind of in the midst of, and of course, you know, Sam has probably passed on a decent bit of this to other folk, even though, even though Gandalf did swear he would turn him into a toad. I'm not, I, look, I'm not certain Sam's going to get out of this without being turned into a toad at some point. Better watch yourself, Sam, um, because he did pass on this information when he knew he shouldn't have done. But... He did do so. But our Chatterbreak question is, which of them do you feel has more reason to be afraid? Frodo, who knows some of the danger, or Merry and Pippin, who simply know there's a great deal of danger and we're heading toward it anyway? Is that, uh, you know, which one of them is, is braving kind of the worst fear here? We've talked about, like, you know, uh, in uh, horror stories and such, the, the most horrifying thing is, of course, before you actually see the full shot of the monster or the slasher or whatever. After you've seen it, it becomes dramatically less scary. Um, you know, you're watching you're watching the, the protagonist, like, you know, try to chop at it with an axe or whatever the hell. Um, <laughs> uh, which one of them is, which one of them is facing the worst fear here? Folks, I'm going to be gone for about five minutes, and then we're going to come back, and I'm going to chat with you all once more. It's good to have you here. Um, as per usual, gang, get up there and chat. Get up there and chat. I want to see what you're thinking about, um, whether right now during the chatter break or um, later on during the chapter itself. I've, I've been really enjoying seeing the discussions about, you know, John Hurt and everything. Um, <laughs> uh, that you know that that stuff it, it doesn't make for good cheddar break for me like it's not gonna it's not going to add into my 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 discussions in between chapters but i'm learning stuff that i never knew about 
uh, and I, I knew a little bit about like the War Doctor and everything, but uh, I, I got to check out Watership Down now. Um, everybody, I love y'all. I really love that music. <laughs> I really love it. Hey, gang. I love y'all. I love y'all. Thank you so much for being here. Let's talk about our chatter break question. Do we think... Do we think that... Frodo... And Sam... And Merry and Pippin... Do we think that uh, the, the ones who are sort of deeply in the know, like Frodo, are going into more fear. Not more danger, but more fear. They're going into the same amount of danger, as far as we can tell, but uh, who's going into the more fear right now? Who's braving the most? Is it better to not know or to know some? Let me see. Proteus Spade says, I think... Uh, I don't think Pippin grasps that the danger is real. Doesn't really grok it. Mary knows, but it's also just sort of clearly Gryffindor material. I know Frodo knows, but at the same time, I don't think he knows at the same time. Practical might, oh, he doesn't know at the same practical might die level that Sam seems to. Now that's interesting. That is very interesting that you have, you've sort of, in your ideation of this, uh, Sam has a more clear understanding of the danger than Frodo does. I am not reading it in that same way. That's fascinating. What, uh, what What's giving you an indication that, that uh, you think Sam sort of like gets the real danger a bit more than Frodo does? That's very interesting. Let me see. Um... Orly Rose says, I also think that Frodo feels compelled but still has freedom, and Merry and Pippin have no real idea of the danger, but Sam has made a real and deep commitment to following Frodo, and that comes with more fear because of what it already means to him as an individual. I do think, so I, I am absolutely with you on the, um, no disagreement on the front that uh, Sam is the one who has sort of like, I think fully understood the commitment of all of this, um, and it, Possibly that's because Frodo really does, but he sort of came about to it a little bit too easily. Does that make sense? I think it's definitely possible that Frodo under d does kind of understand, you know, the, the lengths to which he will have to go here. Um, but he's less vocal about it because he sort of accepted that more quickly and more easily. Uh, whereas for Sam, we're sort of seeing it as it happens. That's interesting to me. Very interesting. Very interesting. Self-a-loaf, hello, welcome. We are about to embark on chapter six. Uh, we have already read through chapter five, but I will give a, a quick summary because frankly, it's kind of a, it was, it was a rest chapter anyway. Purdy Spade says, Sam is real serious about it. Frodo insists on being melancholy and dramatic about it, but Sam is the one making preparations, finding allies. These are practical matters that you focus on if you know what's important. That's definitely possible. I And I, it does make me wonder, I, I would say throughout this, I have kind of wondered, you know, where is Frodo at in the midst of all this? Where is Frodo's, where's Frodo's head at? Um, because I do think there is a certain sense of Frodo uh, not being terribly practical about this, right? He, he seems to have kind of a romantic view of all this. And I have to imagine 
that is kind of what comes of of living around Bilbo. If Bilbo were to tell him everything, you know, of course we we do know that the the ring, he he told Frodo the true story of the ring, right? He didn't he didn't leave the 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 rumor version that it was just yes, uh, his raw skill that got him through those those dungeons with all the goblins and what all. We know that that Bilbo gave some of these accounts as truth, but. I do wonder if living with Bilbo would glamorize the idea of, you know, traveling out into the world and go- going on your dangerous adventure. I, there is a level at which Frodo definitely understands this, right? Frodo Frodo knows that he is heading from peril into peril. Where is where is that line? Frodo says, "My dear and most beloved hobbits, but I could not allow it." I decided that long ago, too. You speak of danger, but you do not understand. This is no treasure hunt. There is no there-and-back journey. I'm flying from deadly peril into deadly peril. I think he gets it, right? That, 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 that to me, indicates that Frodo has accepted this, and either, um, you know, either we really are seeing a Frodo that is not as... that has romanticized this and is not quite prepared for the practicalities of doing this... Or we're hearing someone who has sort of come to terms with all of these things long ago. I think there. I think it's fair to read these in two different ways. Um, for me, it is. It is. It's kind of funny because I know, you know, Frodo is supposed to be a bit older than the rest of these hobbits, um, and I. I do wonder if that sort of plays a part. But at the end of the day, I will say that uh, I certainly agree that Sam is the one who does tend to be making the more realistic preparations for this. He's the one who is uh, concerning himself with the day-to-day of this all, um, and I just wonder, uh, frankly, I wonder where Frodo's head is at, and that might be kind of our, uh, something to look out for in the future. Where is Frodo's head at? Is he, um, is he, as, as my theory tends to go, is he prepared for this and has been for a long time? Is this something that he has sort of made his peace with long ago? You know, possibly when he started to have his first suspicions about, um, you know, what this ring was all really about and, you know, what his fate might be as someone related to Bilbo. You know, he knows he's got some of that took in him. He's not he's not all Baggins, right? He knows he's got some of that took up in him, um, that, that desire for adventure. Has he reconciled himself to the idea that, yeah, someday... I'm going to be dragged out of my hobbit hole by my own uh, ambition or wanderlust. And when that happens, I may not come back. Or is Frodo's head uh, a bit more in the clouds? Has he listening to, uh, has he, you know, listening to uh, Bilbo instead of, Instead of hearing about how how grimy it is, how much of travel is just being hungry all the time and not getting enough sleep, instead of that, has he been listening and romanticizing? Has he thought about the 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 dignity and honor, the um, uh, the, the rumors and fame one might accrue by going on such a journey? Has he absorbed only that side of things and doesn't really fully understand that daily it takes? different sorts of, you know, pretty mundane effort. I like these. I like these competing theories, and I'm very curious to see which direction we head. Try to put out of your mind any thoughts that come in from the films, of course. Um, uh, chiefly among them, the fact that Frodo and Sam and Mary and Pippin all seem to be pretty well exactly the same age in that. Um, 
Uh, that, that's sort of one of the chief things I can think of off the top of my head. But try to try to sink yourself into this, and we'll just be watching that as we go forward. Purdy Spade says Frodo is he's determined, he's dour, he's convinced of his fate, but he doesn't think about the how of anything and leaves these specifics to everyone else. Uh, Frodo definitely knows that the danger is real, but not on a level of, so here's what I have to plan against. This is how I adult through it. He expects misery, but doesn't anticipate how to head it off. He's a different kind of scared. Interesting. Interesting. Grimlikin mentions uh, Sam was threatened by Gandalf, so his danger is different from Frodo's. I do like that. <laughs> I do like that. You know, Sam is Sam is fleeing uh, fleeing away from a different peril from the very beginning. <laughs> Orly Rose says, uh, and Sam also carries Frodo's fears as well as his own. I think living with Bilbo, he would be much more inclined to romanticizing adventure and legend. Yeah, was that exposure to Bilbo, that direct, uncut exposure to Bilbo... Um, was that, did that serve to, on, to de-romanticize these stories and rumors about Bilbo's adventures? Or to really ramp up the romanticization of them? Keep an eye on it as we move forward. A spot of review. Up until this point, we have watched as Frodo and some friends, most especially uh, his gardener-turned-friend, Samwise Gamgee, have headed out of the Shire. Uh, it's the place where... Frodo has lived most of his life with his uncle Bilbo, um, and he has now got this ring in hand and knows the dangers that it poses to the world. It is, of course, a uh, essentially a weapon of mass control by which the enemy might find uh, purchase in the, the hearts and minds of rulers across Middle-earth and come to rule all of Middle-earth by it. It can never be let to fall into the enemy's hands. So... He's going to travel with it, where, uh, away from where the enemy could find out where he's at, to hopefully someone where the enemy, somewhere that the enemy will lose him, at least for a time. Neither he nor Gandalf knows quite how long that will be. He leaves the Shire and heads out toward Crick Hollow, um, uh, and out here, sort of at the very edge of the Shire, this is where he has told everyone, everyone except for Gandalf and Sam, this is where he's going to be moving to. He's going to sort of retire here, settle down, live a quiet life. Well, it appears he was not as secretive as he thought, because here in Chapter 5, uh, A Conspiracy Unmasked, we find that the conspiracy is Sam has been recruiting. There are some other folks who have known about the strangeness of Bilbo Baggins. Um, uh... <laughs> they have noticed that he has disappeared at times into thin air. They know that this ring might be involved somehow. Uh, and indeed, they have watched as Frodo has been slowly saying goodbye to, uh, you know, quiet goodbyes to people and uh, less quiet goodbyes to some of his favorite places. They know he's on his way out and they have a pretty good idea. He's not just heading down the road to a new house. They know he's leaving. And they have elected to come with him. They are leaving uh, Fredegar Bolger, who is a, a friend of, of uh, Frodo's all the same, but has not ever traveled out beyond uh, into the old forest and doesn't really want to know what's outside the Shire. Um, and they need someone to stay behind and let Gandalf know. But as Frodo is, you know, quickly dismayed by the fact that his friends have apparently rooted out all of his secrets that he was supposed to be keeping very, very close to the vest, well... It looks like he's not. it's not just him and Sam anymore. It's going to be him and Sam and Merry and Pippin. They have got the things prepared, and they are ready to head out first thing in the morning. But they want to do this by 
alternate means from the roads. They want to stay off the roads, stay away from the gates, and they have decided instead of heading by any of the normal avenues, instead they are going to head through the old forest on the border of the Shire. I believe they are really now leaving the Shire for good and heading into the old forest where strange tales come of people never returning. Chapter 6 The Old Forest Frodo woke suddenly. It was still dark in the room. Mary was standing there with a candle in one hand and banging on the door with the other. All right! What, what is it? said Frodo, still shaken and bewildered. What is it? cried Mary. It's time to get up. It's half past four and still very foggy. Come on, Sam's already getting breakfast ready. Even Pippin's up. I'm just going to saddle the ponies and fetch the one that's to be the baggage carrier. Wake that sluggard fatty. He must get up and see us off. Soon after six o'clock, the five hobbits were ready to start. Fatty Bulger was still yawning. They stole quietly out of the house. Mary went in front, leading a laden pony, and took his way along a path that went through a spinney behind the house, and then cut across several fields. The leaves of trees were glistening, and every twig was dripping. The grass was gray with cold dew. Everything was still, and faraway noises seemed near and clear. Fowls chattering in a yard, someone closing the door of a distant house. In their shed they found the ponies, sturdy little beasts of the kind loved by hobbits, not speedy, but good for a long day's work. They mounted, and soon they were riding off into the mist which seemed to open reluctantly before them and close forbiddingly behind them. After riding for about an hour, slowly and without talking, they saw the hedge looming suddenly ahead. It was tall and netted over with silver cobwebs. "'How are you going to get through this?' asked Fredegar. "'Follow me,' said Mary, "'and you'll see.' He turned to the left along the hedge, and soon they came to a point where it bent inward, running along the lip of a hollow. A cutting had been made at some distance from the hedge and went sloping gently down into the ground. It had walls of brick on the sides which rose steadily, and suddenly they arched over and formed a tunnel that dived deep under the hedge and came out in a hollow on the other side. Here Fatty Bulger halted. "'Goodbye, Frodo,' he said. "'I wish you were not going into the forest.' I only hope that you'll not need rescuing before the day is out, but good luck to you, today and every day. If there are no worse things ahead than the old forest, I shall be lucky, said Frodo. Tell Gandalf to hurry along the east road. We shall be back on it and going as fast as we can. Goodbye, they cried, and rode down the slope and disappeared from Fredegar's sight into the tunnel. It was dark and damp. At the far end it was closed by a gate of thick-set iron bars. 
Mary got down and unlocked the gate, and when they had all passed through it, he pushed again. It shut with a clang, and the lock clicked. The sound was ominous. There, said Mary. You've left the shire, and now are outside and on the edge of the old forest. Aren't the stories about it true? asked Pippin. I don't know what stories you mean, Mary answered. If you mean the old bogey stories Fatty's nurses used to tell him, about goblins and wolves and things of that sort, I should say no. At any rate, I don't believe them. But the forest is queer. Everything in it seems to be more alive, more aware of what's going on, so to speak, than things are in the Shire. And the trees, they don't like strangers. They watch you. They're usually content merely to watch you, as long as the daylight lasts, and they don't do much. Occasionally the most unfriendly ones might drop a branch or a stick or a root out, or grasp at you with a long trailer, but at night, things can be most alarming. Or so I'm told. I've only once or twice been in here after dark, and then only near the hedge. I thought all the trees were whispering to each other, passing news and plots along in an unintelligible language. And the branches swayed and groped about with any wind. They do say the trees do actually move. And they can surround strangers and hem them in. In fact, long ago they attacked the hedge. They came and planted themselves right by it and leaned over it. But the hobbits came and cut down the hundreds of trees, made a great bonfire in the forest and burned all along the ground in a big strip east of the hedge. After that the trees gave up the attack. But they became very unfriendly. There's still a wide bare spot not far inside where the bonfire was made. Is it only the trees that are dangerous? asked Pippin. There are various queer things living deep in the forest and on the other side, said Mary. Or at least I've heard so. Never seen any of them. But something makes paths. Whenever one comes inside, one finds open tracks, but they seem to shift and change from time to time in a queer fashion. Not far from this tunnel there was for a long time a uh, beginning of a broad path leading to the bonfire glade, and then more or less in our direction, the east and a little north. That's the path I'm going to try and find. The hobbits now left the tunnel gate and rode off across the wide hollow. On the far side was a faint path leading to the floor of the forest, a hundred yards and more beyond the hedge, but it vanished as soon as it brought them out of the trees. Looking back, they could see the dark line of the hedge through the stems of trees that were already thick about them. Looking ahead, they could see only tree trunks of innumerable sizes and shapes, straight or bent, twisted, leaning, squat or slender, smooth or gnarled and branched, all the stems, green or gray with moss and slimy, shaggy growths. Mary alone seemed to be cheerful. "'You better lead on and find that path,' Frodo said to him. Don't let us lose one another, or forget which way the hedge is. They picked away among the trees, and their ponies plodded along, carefully avoiding the many writhing and interlacing roots. There was no undergrowth. The ground was rising steadily, and they went forward. It seemed the trees became taller, darker, and thicker. There was no sound, except an occasional drip of moisture falling from the still trees. For the moment, there was no whispering or moving among the trees, but they all got an uncomfortable feeling that they were being watched with disapproval, deepening to dislike and even enmity. 
The feeling grew steadily until they found themselves looking up quickly or glancing back over their shoulders as if suddenly expecting a blow. There was not yet any sign of a path, and the trees seemed constantly to bar their way. Pippin suddenly felt he could bear it no longer, and without a warning, he let out a shout. Oi! Oi! he cried. I'm not going to do anything. Just let me pass through, will you? The others halted, startled, but the cry fell as if heavily muffled by a curtain. There was no echo or answer through the wood, although it seemed to become more crowded and more watchful than before. I should not shout if I were you, said Mary. It does more harm than good. Frodo began to wonder if it were possible to find a way through, and if he had been right to make the others come into this abominable wood. Mary was looking from side to side and seemed already uncertain which way to go. Pippin noticed it. "'I've stopped taking you long to lose us,' he said. But at that moment, Mary gave a whistle of relief and pointed ahead. "'Well, well,' he said. "'These trees do shift. There's the bonfire glade in front of us, or so I hope, but the path to it seems to have moved away.' The light grew clearer as they went forward. Suddenly they came out of the trees and found themselves in a wide circular space. There was sky above them, blue and clear to their surprise, for down under the forest roof they had not been able to see the rising morning, the lifting of the mist. The sun was not, however, high enough yet to shine down into the clearing, though its light was on the treetops. The leaves were all thicker and greener about the edges of the glade, enclosing it with an almost solid wall. No tree grew there, only rough grass and many tall plants. Stocky and faded hemlocks and wood parsley, fireweed seeding into fluffy ashes and rampant nettles and thistles. A dreary place, but it seemed a charming and cheerful garden after the close forest. The hobbits felt encouraged and looked up hopefully at the broadening daylight in the sky. At the far side of the glade there was a break in the wall of trees and a clear path beyond it. They could see it running on the wood, wide in places and open above, though every now and then the trees drew in and overshadowed it with their dark boughs. Up this path they rode. They were still climbing gently, but they went on now much quicker, and with much better heart, for it seemed to them that the forest had relented, and was going to let them pass unhindered, after all. But after a while, the air began to get hot and stuffy. The trees drew close again on either side, and they could no longer see far ahead. Now stronger than ever, they felt the ill will of the wood pressing upon them. So silent was it that the fall of their ponies' hooves, rustling on dead leaves and occasionally stumbling on hidden roots, seemed to thud in their ears. Frodo tried to sing a song to encourage them, but his voice sank into a murmur. Oh, wondrous... In the shadowed land, despair not, for though the dark they stand, all was there, must end at last, and see the open sun go past, the setting sun, the rising sun, the day's end, or day begun. For east or west, all woods must. Fail. Fail. Even as he said the word, his voice faded into silence. The air seemed heavy and the making of words wearisome. 
Just behind them, a large branch fell from an overhanging tree with a crash onto the path. The trees seemed to close in before them. They did not like that ending about failing, said Mary. I should not sing any more at present. Wait till we get to the edge, and then we'll turn and give him a rousing chorus. He spoke cheerfully, and if he felt any great anxiety, he did not show it. The others did not answer. They were depressed. A heavy weight was settling steadily on Frodo's heart, and he regretted now with every step forward that he had ever thought of challenging the menace of the trees. He was indeed just about to stop and propose going back, if that was still possible, when things took a new turn. The path stopped climbing and became for a while nearly level. The dark trees drew aside, and ahead they could see the path going almost straight forward. Before them, but some distance off, there was a green hilltop, treeless, rising like a bald head on top of a circling wood. The path seemed to be making directly for it. They now hurried forward again, delighted with the thought of climbing out for a while above the roof of the forest. The path dipped and then again began to climb upward, leading them at last to the foot of the steep hillside. There it left the trees and faded into the turf. The wood stood all around the hill like thick hair that ended sharply in a circle round a shaven crown. The hobbits led their ponies up, winding round and round till they reached the top. There they stood and gazed about them. The air was gleaming and sunlit, but hazy. They could not see any great distance. Near at hand, the mists were now almost gone, though here and there it lay in hollows of the wood, and to the south of them, out of the deep fold cutting right across the forest, fog still rose like steam or wisps of white smoke. That, said Mary, pointing out his hand, is the line of the Withywindle. Comes down out of the downs and flows southwest through the mists of the forest to join the Brandywine below Haysen. We don't want to go that way. The Withywindle Valley is said to be one of the queerest places of the whole wood, the center from which all the queerness comes, as it were. The others looked in the direction that Mary had pointed out, but they could see little but mists over the damp and deep cut valley, and beyond it the southern half of the forest faded from view. The sun on the hilltop was now getting hot. It must have been about eleven o'clock, but the autumn haze still prevented them from seeing much in the other directions. In the west, they could not make much of the line of the hedge or the valley of the Brandywine beyond it. Northward, where they had looked most hopefully, they could see nothing that might be the line of the great east road for which they were making. They were on an island in a sea of trees, and the horizon was veiled. On the southeastern side, the ground fell very steeply, as if the slopes of the hill were continuing far down under the trees, like island shores that really are the sides of a mountain rising out of deep waters. They sat on the green edge and looked over the woods before them, while they ate their midday meal. As the sun rose and passed noon, they glimpsed off toward the east, to the gray-green lines of the downs that lay beyond the old forest on that side. That cheered them greatly, for it was good to see a sight of anything beyond the wood's borders. Though they did not mean to go that way if they could help it. The Barrow Downs had as sinister a reputation in Hobbit legend as the forest itself. At length they made up their minds to go on again. The path that had brought them up the hill had reappeared on the northern side, but they had not followed it far before they became aware that it was bending rapidly to the right. Soon it began to descend, and they guessed it must actually be heading toward the Withywindle Valley, not at all the direction they wished to take. 
After some discussion, they decided to leave this misleading path and strike northward. For, although they had not been able to see it from the hilltop, the road must lie that way. And it could not be many miles off. Also northward, and to the left of the path, the land seemed to be drier and more open. Climbing up to slopes where the trees were thinner and pines and firs replaced the oaks and ashes, and other strange and nameless trees of the denser wood. At first, their choice seemed to be good. They got along at a fair speed, though whenever they got a glimpse of the sun in an open glade, they seemed to have unaccountably veered eastward. But after a time, the trees began to close in again, just where they had appeared from a distance to be thinner and less tangled. Then deep folds in the ground were discovered unexpectedly, like the ruts of great giant wheels, or wide moats and sunken roads long disused and choked with brambles. These lay usually right across their line of march, and could only be crossed by scrambling down and out again, which was tiresome and difficult with the ponies. Each time they climbed down, they found the hollow filled with thick bushes and matted undergrowth, which somehow would not yield to the left, but only gave way when they turned to the right, and they had gone some distance along the bottom before they could find a way up the further bank. Each time they clambered out, the trees seemed deeper and darker, and always to the left and upward it was the most difficult to find a way, and they were forced to the right and downward. After an hour or two, they had lost all clear sense of direction, though they knew well enough that they had long ceased to go northward at all. They were being headed off, and were simply following a course chosen for them, eastward and southward, into the heart of the forest, and not out of it. The afternoon was wearing away when they scrambled and stumbled into a fold that was wider and deeper than any they had yet met. It was so steep and overhung that it proved impossible to climb out of it again, either forward or backward, without leaving their ponies and their baggage behind. All they could do was to follow the fold. Downwards. The ground grew soft, and in places boggy. Springs appeared in the banks, and soon they found themselves following a brook that trickled and babbled through a weedy bed. Then the ground began to fall rapidly, and the brook, growing strong and noisy, flowed and leapt swiftly downhill. They were in a deep, dim-lit gully, overarched by trees high above them. After stumbling along for quite some way along the stream, they came quite suddenly out of the gloom. As if through a gate, they saw the sunlight before them. Coming to the opening, they found that they had made their way down through a cleft in a steep high bank, almost a cliff. At its feet was a wide space of grass and reeds, and in the distance could be glimpsed another bank, almost as steep. A golden afternoon of late sunshine lay warm and drowsy upon the hidden land between. In the midst of it all, there wound lazily a dark river of brown water. Bordered with ancient willows, arched over with willows, blocked with fallen willows, and flecked with thousands of faded willow leaves. The air was thick with them, fluttering yellow from the branches, for there was a warm and gentle breeze blowing softly in the valley. And the reeds were rustling, and the willow boughs were creaking. Well, now at least I've got some notion of where we are, said Mary. We've come almost in the opposite direction to which we intended. This is the river Withywindle. I'll go on and explore. He passed out into the sunshine and disappeared into the long grasses. 
After a while, he reappeared and reported that it was fairly solid ground between the cliff foot and the river. In some places, firm turf went down to the water's edge. What's more, he said, there seems to be something like a footpath winding along the side of the river. If we turn left and follow it, we shall be bound to come out of the east side of the forest eventually. I dare say, said Pippin, that is if the track goes on so far and doesn't simply lead us down into a bog and leave us there. Who made the track, do you suppose, and why? I'm sure it was not for our benefit. I'm getting very suspicious of this forest and everything in it, and I begin to believe all the stories about it. And have you any idea how far eastward we should have to go? No, said Mary. I haven't. I don't know in the least how far down the withywindle we are, or who could possibly have come here often enough to make a path out of it. But there's no other way I can think of. There was nothing else for it. They filed out, and Mary began to lead them on the path he had discovered. Everywhere the reeds and grasses were lush and tall, in places far above their heads, but once found, the path was easy to follow, as it turned and twisted, picking out the sounder ground among the bogs and pools. Here and there it passed over other rills, running down gullies into the withy window out of the higher forest lands, and these, there were tree trunks or bundles of brushwood laid carefully across. The hobbits began to feel very hot. There were armies of flies buzzing around their ears, and the afternoon sun was burning on their backs. At last they came suddenly into a thin shade. Great gray branches reached across the paths. Each step forward became more reluctant than the last. Sleepiness seemed to be creeping out of the ground and up their legs, and falling softly upon the air above their heads and eyes. Frodo felt his chin go down and his head nod. Just in front of him, Pippin fell forward onto his knees. Frodo halted. It's no use, Mary said. Can't take another step without rest. Must have a nap. It's cool under the willows. Less flies. Frodo did not like the sound of this. Come on, he cried. We can't have a nap yet. We've got to get clear of the forest first. But the others were too far gone to care. Beside them, Sam stood yawning and blinking stupidly. Suddenly, Frodo himself felt sleep overwhelming him. His head swam. There now seemed hardly a sound in the air. The flies had stopped buzzing, only a gentle noise on the edge of hearing. A soft fluttering, as if of a song half-whispered, seemed to stir in the boughs above. He lifted his heavy eyes and saw, leaning over him, a huge willow tree, old and hoary. Enormous it looked, its sprawling branches growing up like reaching arms with many long-fingered hands, its knotted and twisted trunk gaping in wide fissures that creaked faintly as the boughs moved. The leaves fluttering against the bright sky dazzled him, and he toppled over, lying where he fell upon the grass. Mary and Pippin dragged themselves forward and lay down with their backs to the willow trunk. Behind them, the great cracks gaped wide to receive them as the tree swayed and creaked. They looked up at the gray and yellow leaves, moving slowly and softly against the light and singing. They shut their eyes, and then it seemed they could almost hear words. 
cool words, saying something about water and sleep. They gave themselves up to the spell and fell asleep at the foot of the great gray willow. Frodo lay for a while, fighting the sleep that was overpowering him, and with an effort he struggled to feel again. He felt a compelling desire for cool water. Wait for me, Sam, he stammered. Must bathe feet a minute. Half in a dream, he wandered forward to the riverside of the tree, where great winding roots grew out into the stream like gnarled dragonets straining down to drink. He straddled one of these and paddled his hot feet in the cool brown water, and there he too suddenly fell asleep with his back against the tree. Sam sat down and scratched his head, and yawned like a cavern. He was worried. The afternoon was getting late, and he thought this sudden sleepiness uncanny. There's more behind this than sun and warm air, he muttered to himself. We don't like this great big tree. I don't trust it. Hark at it singing about sleep now. This won't do at all. He pulled himself to his feet and staggered off to see what had become of the ponies. He found that two had wandered on a good way along the path, and he just caught them and brought them back toward the others when he heard two noises. One loud, the other soft but very clear. One was the splash of something heavy falling into the water, and the other was a noise like the snick of a lock when a door quietly closes fast. He rushed back to the bank. Frodo was in the water close to the edge, and a great tree root seemed to be over him and holding him down. But he was not struggling. Sam gripped him by the jacket and dragged him from under the root, and then with difficulty hauled him up onto the bank. Almost at once he woke and coughed and spluttered. "'Do you know, Sam,' he said at length, "'that beastly tree threw me in. I felt it. The big root just twisted round and tipped me in.' "'You were dreaming, I expect, Mr. Frodo,' said Sam. "'You shouldn't sit in such a place if you feel sleepy.' "'What about the others?' Frodo asked. "'I wonder what sort of dreams they're having.' They went round to the other side of the tree, and then Sam understood the click that he had heard. Pippin had vanished. The crack by which he had laid himself had closed altogether, so that not a chink could be seen. Merry was trapped. Another crack had been closed around his waist. His legs lay outside, but the rest of him was inside a dark opening, the edges of which gripped like a pair of pinchers. Frodo and Sam beat upon the tree with their fists where Pippin had lain. Then they struggled frantically to open up the jaws of the crack that had laid onto poor Mary. It was quite useless. "'What a foul thing to happen!' cried Frodo wildly. "'Why do we ever come to this dreadful forest? I wish we were all back at Crick Hollow!' He kicked the tree with all of his strength, heedless of his own feet. A hardly perceptible shiver ran through the stem and up into the branches. The leaves rustled and whispered. But now with a sound of faint and far-off laughter. "'I suppose we haven't got an axe among our luggage, Mr. Frodo,' said Sam. "'I brought a little hatchet for chopping firewood,' said Frodo. "'That won't be much use.' "'Wait a minute,' cried Sam, struck suddenly by the suggested firewood. "'We might do something with fire!' "'We might,' said Frodo doubtfully. "'We might succeed in roasting Pippin alive inside.' 
We might try to hurt or frighten this tree to begin with, said Sam fiercely. If I don't let him go, I'll have it down, if I have to gnaw on it. He ran to the ponies and before long came back with two tinder boxes and a hatchet. Quickly they gathered dry grass and leaves and bits of bark, and made a pile of broken twigs and chopped sticks. These they heaped against the trunk on the far side of the tree from the prisoners. As soon as Sam had struck a spark into the tinder, it crackled and kindled with dry grass, and the flurry of flames and smoke went up. Twigs cracked, little fingers of fire licked against the dry, scored rind of the ancient tree, and a tremor ran through the whole willow. The leaves seemed to hiss above their heads with the sound of pain and anger. A loud scream came from Mary, and far inside the tree they heard Pippin give a muffled yell. Put it out! Put it out! cried Mary. He'll squeeze me in two if you don't. He says so. Who? What? shouted Frodo, rushing round to the other side of the tree. Put it out! Put it out! begged Mary. The branches of the willow began to sway violently. There was a sound as if of wind rising and spreading outward to the branches of the other trees round about, as though they had dropped a stone into the quiet slumber of the river valley and set up ripples of anger that ran out through the whole forest. Sam kicked at the little fire and stamped out the sparks, but Frodo, without any clear idea of why he did so, or what he had hoped for, ran along the path crying, Help! 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 It seemed to him that he could hardly hear the sound of his own shrill voice. It was blown away from him by the willow wind and drowned in a clamor of leaves. As soon as the word left his mouth, he felt desperate, lost and witless. Suddenly, he stopped. There was an answer, or so he thought, but it seemed to be coming from behind him, away down the path further back into the forest. He turned round and listened. And soon there could be no doubt, for someone was singing a song. A deep, glad voice was singing carelessly and happily, but it was singing nonsense. A dull, merry dull, ring-a-dong dillo, ring-a-dong, up-along, follow the willow. Tom bum, jolly tom, tom bum badillo. Half hopeful and half afraid of some new danger, Frodo and Sam now both stood still. Suddenly, out of a long string of nonsense words, or so they seemed, the voice rose up loud and clear and burst into this song. Hey, come, merry dot, dairy dole, my darling, light. Goes down the wither wind and feathered starling, down under the hill shining in sunlight, waiting on the doorstep for cold starlight. Here my pretty lady is, river woman's daughter, slender as the willow wand, clearer than the water. Old Tom Bombadil, what a lily's bringing, comes hopping home again, can you hear him singing? Hey, come merry dole, dairy dole, merry oh, gold berry, gold berry, merry yellow berry oh. Poor old willow man. You tuck your roots away. Tom's in a hurry now. Evening follow day. Tom's gone home again. Water lilies bringing. Hey, come, Derry Doe. Can you hear me singing? Frodo and Sam stood as if enchanted. 
The wind puffed out, the leaves hung silently again on stiff branches. There was another burst of song, and then suddenly, hopping and dancing across the path, there appeared above the reeds an old battered hat with a tall crown and blue feather stuck in the band. With another hop and bound, there came into view a man, or so it seemed. At any rate, he was too large and heavy for a hobbit, if not quite tall enough for one of the big people, though he made noise enough for one slumping along with great yellow boots on his thick legs and charging through the grass and rushes like a cow going to drink. He had a blue coat and a long brown beard. His eyes were blue and bright, and his face was red as a ripe apple, but creased with a hundred wrinkles of laughter. In his hands he carried a large leaf as a tray for a small pile of water lilies. Help! cried Frodo and Sam, running toward him with their hands stretched out. "'Oh, oh, steady there,' cried the old man, holding out one hand, and they stopped short as if they'd been struck stiff. "'Now, my little fellows, where be you are going, puffing like a bellows? What's the matter here, then? Do you know who I am? I'm Tom Bombadil. Tell me what's your trouble. Tom's in a hurry now. Don't crush my lilies.' "'My friends are caught inside the willow tree,' cried Frodo breathlessly. "'Master Mary's being squeezed inside a crack,' cried Sam. "'What?' shouted Tom Bombadil, leaping into the air. "'Old man Willow! No twist than that, eh? <laughs> that can soon be mended. I know the tune for him. Old grey Willow man will freeze his marrow cold if he doesn't behave himself. I'll sing his roots off.' I'll sing a wind up and blow leaf and branch away. Old man Willow! Setting down his lilies carefully on the grass, he ran to the tree. There he saw Mary's feet still sticking out. The rest had already been drawn further inside. Tom put his mouth to the crack and began singing into it in a low voice. They could not catch the words, but evidently Mary was aroused. His legs began to kick. Tom sprang away and, breaking off a willow branch, smote the side of the willow with it. You let them out again, old man Willow, he said. What be you a-thinking of? You should not be waking. Eat earth, dig deep, drink water, go to sleep. Bombadil is talking. He then seized Mary's feet and drew him out suddenly of the widening crack. There was a tearing creak, and the other crack split open, and out of it Pippin sprang, as if he'd been kicked. And with loud snaps, both cracks closed fast again. A shudder ran through the tree from root to tip, and complete silence fell. Thank you, thank you, thank you, said the hobbits, one after the other. Tom Bombadil burst out laughing. <laughs> well, my little fellows, said he, stooping so that he peered into their faces, you shall come along with me. The table is all laden with yellow cream, honeycomb, and white bread and butter. Goldberry is waiting. Time enough for questions around the supper table. You follow after me as quick as you're able. With that, he picked up his lilies, and then, beckoning with a wave of his hand, he went hopping and dancing along the path eastward, still singing loudly and nonsensically. Too surprised and too relieved to talk, the hobbits followed after him as fast as they could. That was not fast enough. Tom soon disappeared in front of them, and the noise of his singing got fainter and further away. Suddenly his voice came floating back to them in a loud halloo. 
Hop along, my little friends, up the withy window. Tom's going on ahead, candles for to kindle. Down west sinks the sun, soon you will be groping. When the night shadows fall, then the door will open. Out the window panes light shines, twinkling in yellow. Fear no alder black, heed no hoary willow. Fear neither root nor bough, Tom goes out before you. Hey, now, Mary Dot will be waiting for you. After that, the hobbit heard no more. Almost at once, the sun seemed to sink into the trees behind them. They thought of the slanting light of evening glittering over the Brandywine River, and the windows of Buckleberry beginning to gleam with hundreds of lights. Great shadows fell across them. Trunks and branches of trees hung dark and threatening over the path. White mists began to rise and curl on the surface of the river and stray about the roots of the trees upon its borders. Out of the very ground at their feet, a shadowy steam arose and mingled with the swiftly falling dusk. It became difficult to follow the path, and they were very tired. Their legs seemed leaden. Strange, furtive noises ran among the bushes and reeds on either side of them, and if they looked up into the pale sky, they caught sight of queer, gnarled, and knobbly faces that gloomed dark against the twilight, and leered down at them from the high bank and the edges of the wood. They began to feel that all this country was unreal, and they were stumbling through an ominous dream that led to no awakening. Just as they felt their feet slowly sliding to a standstill, they noticed that the ground was gently rising. The water began to murmur. In the darkness, they caught the white glitter of foam, where the river flowed against a short fall. Then suddenly the trees came to an end and the mists were left behind. They stepped out from the forest and found a wide sweep of grass welling up before them. The river, now small and swift, was leaping merrily down to meet them, glinting here and there in the light of the stars, which were already shining in the sky. The grass under their feet was smooth and short, as if it had been mown or shaven. The eaves of the forest behind were clipped and trim as a hedge. The path was now plain before them, well tended and bordered with stone. It wound up to the top of a grassy knoll now gray under the pale starry night, and there, still high above them, on a further slope, they saw the twinkling lights of a house. Down again the path went, and then up again, up a long, smooth hillside of turf toward the light. Suddenly, a wide yellow beam flowed out brightly from a door that was opened. There was Tom Bombadil's house before them, up, down, under hill. Behind it was a steep shoulder of land, gray and bare, and beyond that, the dark shapes of the Barrow Downs stalked away into the eastern night. They all hurried forward, hobbits and ponies. Already half their weariness and all of their fears had fallen from them. Hey, come merry dole, rolled out the song to greet them. Hey, come derry dole, hop along my hearties. Hobbit's ponies all were fond of parties. Now let the fun begin, let us sing together. And then another clear voice, as young and as ancient as spring like the song of glad water flowing down into the night from a bright morning in the hills, came falling like silver to meet them. Now let the song begin, let us sing together. 
of sun, stars, moon, mist, rain and cloudy weather, light upon the budding leaf, dew on the feather, wind upon the open hills, bells upon the heather, reeds up by the shady pool, lilies on the water, Old Tom Bombadil and the River Daughter. And with the song, the hobbits stood upon the threshold, and a golden light was all about them. There we are, my good folks. What do you think? How you liking it so far? Tom Bombadil, one of the most notable characters not to appear in the films. Um, sensible when you think about certain elements of this. As a matter of fact, I mean, if y'all want to really talk about stuff that got cut, um, we are now in the, like, let's see, what? The third, uh, I think that's the third chapter in a row of stuff that all pretty much got cut. Right? Because let's rewind over a few chapters. There's that chapter in this old forest that they never really travel through in the films. Um, prior to that, they are hanging out in... Um, uh, oh, what's it? What is it? Crick Hollow? They're hanging out at Crick Hollow, which we never really visit in the films. Um, and then prior to that, they are... Uh, they're hanging out with Farmer Maggot, who we... The all we see of Farmer Maggot literally is a a sickle that he's carrying through his field. We never have we never have dinner with Farmer Maggot in the films. Again, I think that this I mean of of my experience, which is not extensive, but it's you know it's enough. Um, of my experience, I do think that these films are some of the best, uh, some of the best reformatting done for films. Right, uh, this the the translation of these books into films was some of the most masterful work I've ever seen done on that front. Um, could I have, could, would I have enjoyed a, like, a six-movie series? Yeah, I probably would have, but they did a really excellent job doing it in three. An excellent job. Um, but it is fun, as I've mentioned before, so we don't need to go into it again. We've talked so much about, uh, you know, there, there is, there are so many elements of dramaturgy, but um, there is, there is this one that we keep coming back to because it's just a good way to introduce what dramaturgy is. I just love watching how these little changes got made and all of the little challenges that uh, new writers have to come upon when they're trying to, you know, redo these stories in different media. You know, the medium of film, very, very different from how it's done here. Uh, and it's, it's always fascinating to me to watch that. Uh, Orly Rose says, that's not strictly true. The first hobbit with the barking dogs uh, that the Black Rider asks about Baggins is Farmer Maggot. Is that true, Orly Rose? Do they switch that away and make it Farmer Maggot instead of the gaffer. I, I I would believe you, but I don't remember it. Even though I have watched uh, I w I watched the extended versions of all of these films like pretty darn recently. Uh, I watched the extended versions of all three of them within the last two months, I would say. So pretty recently. <laughs> um, but yeah, I did not remember that. 
thank you for the correction. I appreciate it. Um, so yeah, we don't. At the same time, you know, we we just don't get a lot of a lot of uh, hanging out with Farmer Maggot, which is too bad because he seems like a cool dude. You know, <laughs> he just seems like a cool guy. He's he's one of these. Um, He's one of these old folk that you get every once in a while who just could not give less of a damn uh, who has decided to, you know, what powers are behind whatever threat has appeared. They're just like, look, I'm too old to care about this. Just get the hell off my land. I don't care if you're the spookiest little ghoul that has ever arrived here. Uh, just piss clean off. <laughs> I don't care who you're looking for. You're not going to find them. Piss clean off. And also, hey. Little guy, I remember when you used to run around in my fields. I remember you you were a menace. You were a menace as a teenager. And so, now that I've caught you and I've got you in my grip, here's dinner and a ride and a basket full of mushrooms for your trouble. I'll see you later, son. <laughs> you, you stay safe. <laughs> Love him. I really like Farmer Maggot. Um... Um, Pretty Spade says, I have many comments regarding this uh, area being Faye and Tom Bombadil. Yes, indeed. I've actually been reading those sort of as we've gone along. Uh, some interesting notes about Tom Bombadil not using uh, any or many uh, Latin-derived words. That is something which I think, uh, if y'all were to re-listen to this, would be a very interesting... I mean, we're about to have uh, more time with Tom Bombadil because Chapter 7 is titled In the House of Tom Bombadil. We're about to have some more time with Tom Bombadil, which means that, uh, you know, something to keep an eye out for. How many Latin-derived words does Tom Bombadil use, and does that make it weird to listen to him? Um, uh, Pretty Spade has noted that, you know, it is... It, it's a pretty handy way to make him feel a little less human and a little bit more fey, right? Because even even English in the era in which um, uh, Tolkien was writing these it had a fair bit of Latin in it. It's a Germanic language. It's not, you know, technically one of the Romance languages derived from Latin, but it still got a, like we are we are inundated with Latinate words, and so it is it is notable when you don't hear any. <laughs> Bertie Spade says Tom effing Bombadil. You make him sound so much. Uh, you make him sound much, 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 much better and more interesting and compelling than my mom did. I think much of my initial animosity to him was her sing-song chanting of all of his lines. I I'm going to admit to you that I uh, I also found Tom Bombadil and this sort of these elements pretty boring when I was first reading this. As a matter of fact, I. With that in mind, uh, my dad wanted me to read these books before I watched the films because I had noticed that the films were coming out and I had mentioned that. And then he said, hey, let me get you the books and uh, go ahead and read those first. Um, and then if you if you like it, then we will go ahead and watch the movies. Uh, and that is roundabout what happened. But I watched I, I read the book for the first time, read all three of these books for the first time. I watched the films and then I believe when I came back to it, Tom Bombadil was one of the few sections that I actually skipped. Uh, I would skip it on my read-through. So I suppose it can't quite be said that I really have read this in its entirety three times. I've read it almost three times. <laughs> almost. Orly Rose says this is a Feywood for certain. Um, indeed. Indeed. And 
Well, I can't go. I don't want to go into too many spoilers. I was going to talk about what Tom Bombadil's deal is, but uh, we're going to have to discover that later on. And I don't even believe we get the full story until we meet back up with Gandalf. But um, again, even that's kind of a mild spoiler. But I gotta, I gotta step away from it. Um, uh, Pretty Spade says that's something I only noticed because it's been relevant for my fanfic occasionally. Though I hear a rumor that George Orwell hated using Latin-based words and avoided it. That is interesting. It is a very, um, it is a very uh, almost scientific language, right? And and I don't mean, I I I know you could interpret that rightly to mean a language that is associated with scientific pursuits, but I also mean it is a language that almost feels kind of constructed. It is a it's kind of a modular language almost, which I suppose in a sense all languages are, but this one uh, Latin at least to me feels very very modular. You take sections uh, of of syllables rather than rather than creating a new word for each thing. Oftentimes Latinate words are simply combinations of subwords that are always the same syllables that sort of mean the same thing and then you combine those all together into these uh, I guess just very meaningful portmanteau. I suppose. Anyway, I'm not a linguist. I am a I'm a literature fan and enthusiast. I am not a linguist. Um, but uh, if we've got any linguists who are listening, I would be fascinated to hear what you think of all this. Um, Pretty Spade says, uh, only difference is my family read the first chunk of fellowship to me until it finally grabbed me. So I think... Um, it, this one was actually, it was one, I, I did not have a hard time with this. I, I did not have quite as hard a time kind of connecting with this and latching onto it. Now, I think part of that was the fact that I, um, you know, I'd seen some of the images from the movies, so I knew like, oh, wow, this is like a really cool, dark, gritty, magical world uh, with enough realism that it didn't feel silly uh, and sort of like, uh, it didn't feel like pageantry. It felt like, um, uh, it felt, it felt inhabited. It didn't feel like it was Put on as much as it had been lived in, and this was kind of an account of something realistic. I had not read uh, The Hobbit prior to this. My my first time reading The Hobbit was after my first time reading uh, The Lord of the Rings. Um, and I think it was it was some of the first. It was some of the first bits of lore. It was frankly, it was the the um, there was a foreword which I believe was by. I've got the book right here. I, I can find out all of this immediately. Why am I trying to guess my way through it? I believe there's a forward by C.S. Lewis, if I remember correctly. Um, let me see. Uh, note in the text, forward to the second edition. It is the prologue concerning hobbits and other matters. I was in at the prologue. The prologue is what got me. There is a particular moment. I want to say it's called pipe. I, I want to say it's the, the first mentions of pipeweed. Um, but the... Let's see, forward on the second edition. Let me see if I'm right about that. Am I am I a real goof? I'm in the prologue now. Here's the forward. Oh, I suppose I was wrong about it. Anyway, that's fine. Um, the the prologue uh, concerning pipeweed uh, of the ordering of the Shire. Um, of the finding of the ring, these pr this prologue it is a um, just little bits of things uh, regarding hobbits and how they operate. And for me, that was enough. For me, I was like, oh, okay. There's if if I, if I read this, I will be rewarded with a, an entirely new concept of what this little community could look like. Um, I, I'd be rewarded with an entirely new idea of sort of ways of life. It 
it was fascinating to me from that point. But like I said, I did have some of the imagery of the movies to to also say to me, hey, there's also going to be some considerable action in this. Um, <laughs> Proteus Bates says, I read The Hobbit first, so this felt very slow in comparison. And I could not agree with you more. I think this would feel very, very dry if you were a young person expecting it to feel like The Hobbit did. Because, you know, The Hobbit, like we talked about, The Hobbit feels very much like a series of bedtime stories, right? Each chapter has its own rise and fall to it. Each chapter could be, uh, you know, serialized. It could have been published in much the same way as we are talking about um, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes was published, which was like kind of a chapter at a time sort of thing printed in the newspaper. So you didn't buy a Sherlock Holmes book um, if you were if you were not a wealthy person. You would follow along with these things in the newspaper. That kind of stuff. Um, uh, uh, Charles Dickens did the same thing. I believe uh, Mark Twain did a lot of the same thing. Just that era was sort of defined by this little chunks of story. And you could have done The Hobbit precisely like that. Um, I don't. We, we talked about the history of The Hobbit and its publishing um, while we were reading The Hobbit. You can find that on uh, uh, using the SCS. You can use, use the playlists command. <laughs> uh, Linktree slash playlists. Uh, excuse me. Link. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. Linktree slash SCS playlists. Uh, looks like my bot is off for just no reason. Once again, it just loves to kind of shut itself off every once in a while. Couldn't tell you why it does it, um, but. Linktree slash SCS playlists. You can find all of those back episodes. Um, but as we are, you know, as we're reading through this, it doesn't feel like The Hobbit did. The Hobbit told individual stories uh, at a very consistent pace. This one is telling a much broader story. We get chapters, um, you know, like being at Crick Hollow or what have you, where there, there, there's a bit of a rising and falling action, right? It's, it, it is well-written. Um, but we don't find that some great hurdle has been overcome or some new threat presented at the beginning of this chapter has been defeated by the end of this chapter, which we get a lot of over in, uh, over in The Hobbit. So I could absolutely understand why someone coming to this story from The Hobbit would think, I haven't seen, like, no trolls have been turned to stone yet. I haven't, uh, haven't watched... Frodo escape any big scrapes. The closest we've come to feeling like we're in real danger was when the Black Rider was sniffing the ground. That's about it, right? That's kind of as dangerous as it's gotten so far. And what's this all about a birthday party? I have to read about neighbors and and <laughs> and con a, a Hobbit contract law. I need how many signatures in red ink? And what doesn't come into effect until midnight? What is all this? What? <laughs> <laughs> Hobbit contract law um, appears multiple times in the first chapters of this book, so I can absolutely understand why it would not have seized uh, a young person in the same way had you read The Hobbit first. Makes perfect sense. Uh, and, um, you know, as we sort of wrap up our discussion of it for the evening, I think let's remember, um, this isn't I'm, I'm not hollering at Proteus Spade. I know that you are super into this. This is not at, at Proteus. Um, but just in general, um, let's remember sort of one of our sort of big pillars of helping us to understand uh, a, a work of literature. Uh, and that is, who was it designed to reach? Who is its intended audience? Its intended audience is definitely older than, than The Hobbit was, right? We can see it in, uh, in the prose, you know, in the, in the, in the 
uh, diction, the, the words selected to use. We can see it. Uh, I am finding it as you find, y'all are hearing me do my little more often. Uh, that is because the syntax, the way in which those words are combined, uh, that is also more challenging. This was certainly written for adults. And boy, if I could just hold that up for you, that hopefully will be an, uh, an indication. This was definitely more for adults. Um, and then he wrote uh, sort of the, the next kind of installment in this, which I think was, I mean, it must have been uh, an entry in the series for like monks or something. I had a hard time with the Silmarillion. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, gang. I did, though. Um, <laughs> I think uh, I think I'm really, really enjoying this, folks. I am really happy that y'all are here to join me. And as I've mentioned before, if you want to find the back episodes of this, go ahead and linktree slash SCS playlists. That is plural. L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash SCS playlists. And of course, uh, you can find that link uh, over in my normal link tree, link tree slash sidecar stories, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash sidecar stories. That's the link to follow. And that is the link to share with folks, because of course we are embarking on the Lord of the Rings. We are embarking on uh, Sherlock Holmes. Although I will say we have made some pretty solid progress into that first book. Um, a study in Scarlet. We have made some great progress. I believe we are halfway through that book right now uh, as it is arranged. Everyone, it has been an absolute blast. And I, uh, I will also say I've been having a lot of fun on some of them are some of our late night streams um, doing uh, Oblivion playthrough. We are doing a, a lore heavy Oblivion playthrough uh, where our goal is to collect all the books that there are. And I have just discovered a quest that I had no idea about. I'm pretty sure it's part of some DLC, but uh, there is someone named Jaffrey, not Joffrey from the main quest, but Jaffre. Uh, Jaffre. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce the name. J-A-P-H-R-E, um, who is known as the storyteller, some sort of deity. I'm super excited to get involved with that. Uh, that's sort of where we left off our last episode was me kind of uh, taking a little peek at that because we came upon a camp. So anyway, Oblivion's been great. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if tonight when Cass gets home, we watch some TV and TV means that I'm going to be doing some forehead cam streaming of me doing some crafting. So uh, y'all, very, very exciting times uh, in Sidecar Stories. Uh, and of course, we've got our Wednesday campaign. If you like uh, tabletop RPGs, we are playing in a world that we created in a system that I wrote uh, called Silver Bullet. We are playing in the Realms of Recetus. And if you want to join the Realms of Recetus yourself, because there are some people, there are some people who, who come to some of my streams that I just know you'd have a good time over there, but I haven't seen you, you haven't seen you pop in yet. We've got the Realms of Recetus RP and Adventure server. Um, right now, our our some of our recruits on the airship are coming up against a bit of a conspiracy. We shall see how they're able to navigate that. Everybody, I really, really appreciate all of y'all who have joined me here today. Um, can I tell you that this, this read-through went a bit quicker than I was anticipating? I do have to jump because my, my I woke up with a sore throat today and yesterday as well. Um, Cass was sick last week and it all started with a sore throat. I'm just, I just got to pray. Essentially, I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to pray to what? Joffrey, I guess. And I'm going to, <laughs> going to pray to the storyteller from Oblivion. Uh, and I'm going to uh, get myself some vitamin C. <sighs> Orly Rose, Purdy Spade, Gwendog. Everybody else who has joined us here tonight, I want to thank you all so much for being here. I love y'all. 
Um, and uh, if I don't see you tonight for some crafting, uh, maybe I'll see you later tonight, I suppose, for some Oblivion. Maybe. I'm not making any guarantees. We did one last night and one earlier this week. Uh, and y'all are... I, I've seen many of y'all notice, like, ah, Sam, why are you, why are you streaming so late? I'm up super late every single night anyway. Uh, this is just the first time I've done much streaming during that time. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, because I, I sort of I can't really read because if there are like shouts that need to happen, I gotta I gotta keep those like more chilled out, um, and I can do so because there's game audio to sort of fill in the times. Pretty Spade says Sam only streams Oblivion when I sleep. Um, this is actually true. I've I have uh, I've sent a, an unseen servant to spy on Proteus Spade and let me know when Proteus is asleep, and during that time, uh, that is the only time I'm willing to stream. If Proteus Spade is asleep, uh, because I have fear. Um, Proteus Spade, I don't know how caught up you are on some of the episodes, but I, I have named you um, the hidden, <laughs> the hidden Daedric Lord, <laughs> Proteus Spade, which frankly sounds like a, a pretty solid Daedric Lord name anyway. Hey, gang, let's see if there's anybody to raid on over to. Ooh, I'm seeing Emmy. Emmy's playing Mass Effect. Uh, we're going to raid on over to Emmy. If you want to join the raid, you, there is no need to press anything. Just join in with us here. And when we get over there, be nice. Don't uh, uh, don't try to dominate the channel by any means, but I want to see some hype. Say hi to over to to, to uh, Emmy there, and uh, you know what? If you if you're just lacking the words, if you don't know what to say, O equals yo. Capitalize capitalize that Y. Don't forget O equals yo, gang. Let's uh, let's ride on over there. Everybody, mount up! Come on, you punk ruffians! Sidecar MC, mount up! We're going to ride on over and uh, say hello to Emmy the Odd. Uh, everybody, thank you so much for joining me here tonight. It's been grand, uh, and I will see you a little bit later on. Hop on in. Remember, you don't have to press anything if you want to join. All you got to do is sit back, sit back and relax, and then once we dodge on over there, I want to see some hype. I want to see some hype. Let's go! Ah! <laughs> Have a great night, y'all. Bye-bye.